0: Amen. If you would be turning in your Bibles to First Peter chapter two, uh, we're going to be in verses one through twelve this morning. Um, And just to catch us up to where we are uh, again, this is Peter is beginning to unpack the imperatives uh, of what it means to live out God's love for us. What does it mean to live out the resurrection? What does that look like in a tangible way in a fallen world? And so uh, we wanna be paying special attention to that, not forgetting what has come before because Peter's not going to challenge us to do things without a firm foundation. He's challenging us from that firm foundation. It's not that we're having to live up to it, we are given the opportunity to live out of it, and that is a very different way of of approaching it. So uh, again, uh, Peter has referred to them specifically as elect exiles, and that's very important because the fact that they are elect tells them what about their salvation? What, What part did they play in making themselves worthy of salvation? None none whatsoever. And that is very helpful because that means that it was, it was pure grace. It was purely God's redemptive will that has redeemed them. Now, is it, is it that that they're elects that makes them better than everybody else who's not elect? Absolutely not. In fact, they are saved. We are saved for a purpose. And what is that purpose? spread the gospel. And, and another way of saying it is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The, the way in which we glorify God is to bear his image in the world, to display his redemptive love, to make sure that people know that they are, in fact, worthy of the image that they bear, uh, that their worth is not tied to their mistakes and failings, which we all have, by the way. Uh, and so it's not that they're more perfect uh, they just better understand God's love. And so their calling, their task in this world is to give that away. So one of their identifying marks is that they are God's children. And we should recognize the same thing, right? We too should recognize who we are in reference to God. Because if we get that twisted, then everything else that we try to do is, is just, it's just off kilter. The second identifying mark is actually in reference to their relationship to the world. He calls them exiles. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that this world is not their home. This is, is, the goal is not necessarily to, to build our entire kingdom here. In fact, there's an eternal kingdom uh, that is going to supplant. It's the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus returns. How we live in this life does matter. So we can't, that doesn't, being exiled doesn't mean we ignore what's going on. In fact, it, because of our elect status and our calling to share the gospel, it means that we're very involved locally without being so involved that we lose our first identity. Does that make sense? Oftentimes we do. We get so involved in other things that we tend to lose our identity as the elect, which is what's critical to remember you are also an exile. And that this, this is not the goal. The goal is actually eternal. And so that becomes very important um, as Peter unpacks in chapter one, <clears throat> the resurrection and the fact that we're called to a living hope. We're supposed to be born again, uh, which is gonna factor into our text heavily this morning. That idea is gonna loop back around as he calls for us to, to long for the pure spiritual milk, which is the word of God uh, with sincere hearts as if we are newborns. Uh, and then he, he goes on to make sure that we understand how much God loves us. In fact, he takes a lot of time in chapter one. Uh, in fact, it's, it's in the concluding sections that he begins to shift from the indicative of God's love, as, we, as we've talked about that in here, that firm foundation, that established truth of God's love, to now then how should you live knowing that you are loved by the creator of the universe. And as Matt shared with us last week from the text, we are called to love one another. That, that one of the primary evidences of our salvation, Jesus said it, that how will the world know who you are? By your divisions and the denominations. No, that's no, not what Jesus said. That's kind of what we've been saying along the way throughout history. But it's by, by the love that we have for one another. And that, that is inarguable. However, um, Peter's going to push us even a little further into that space and call for us this morning to be very active in putting something away that, that I, I don't know that we're as serious about as we need to be. And so, so as, we, as we go to tackle some of this, recognize it's, it's not about you being tangled up in, in any past failing or, or feeling like you're a failure, the question is how, now knowing what we know, how do we go forward as a church? How do we untangle some of these things so that we can display the glory of God and enjoy Him? It's hard to enjoy God when you think He's mad at you, right? It's hard to enjoy God when you think that He doesn't really like you or that He's not very pleased with you. It's hard to enjoy God when you're doing what you know uh, is, is against his will. And so, uh, Peter's gonna call for us to work on something in particular this morning so that the world would be welcome here. So I have a question for you in light of that. Uh, and this is an interesting question I think is worth thinking about because I think we're very reactionary in terms of our relationships, whereas I think we should be much more proactive. So, so the question is this, what's worth ending a friendship over? Ever thought about that, or have you just found yourself in a spot and been like, "Oh yeah, no, this right here"? Never thought about it before, but I know for a fact this right here is worth it. I hadn't thought about it, but I feel it. It's, it's. I should do it right now. I should end this friendship. Everything invested. I should put it to death, without ever having thought about really what, what should, what are the range of things that should bring an end to a, a friendship, a relationship, or an affiliation something you've committed to? I don't think we think about that enough, but we oftentimes find ourselves in that space and we're reacting because it's all visceral instead of putting some real thought into it. But I think it's even better, a better question that may keep you out of this first question is what's worth fighting for to maintain or keep? What's what's worth making the effort over? What's worth fighting for to maintain or keep? Now, what does the gospel tell us is worth fighting for? Got to be at least one Christian in here, and it can't just be Susan. What's that? We ought to fight for the opportunity to proclaim Christ, which means that we value what? More than anything else in the world. Other people. The other it means that we recognize that the, the thing that Christ came for was not, not to help us. He, he didn't look down on the world and go, if you guys just had the right governance, like if you just had the right people in power, if you just had the right social justice mindset, if you just had the right like, like institutional stuff in place, This thing would run like clockwork. I could take an eternal Sabbath rest in the back of the universe and not have to worry about you guys. My priests could run the show. It'd be perfect because I really like the territory out, you know, basically south of Pluto. That's not what he said, was it? He he looked upon the world and said, "There there is one thing in this world that bears my image uniquely, and that is you. And I will send my son to die for you in a horrific fashion. And I will bear stroke after stroke after stroke from you because I'm long-suffering and I am kind and I am forgiving to thousands upon thousands of generations. And I even tell sin it must stop in the third or the fourth generation so that it can't consume an entire lineage of people. That's how much I love you. And I'm going to continue to bear with you week after week, year after year, as you are prayerless and you don't pray and you are mean to each other and you couldn't care less about your nearest neighbor, your wife or your children or your husband or your family. And yet I will continue to pursue you until Christ returns. We're gonna hear later in Second Peter as people begin to kind of wrestle with that and go, where, where, when's he coming? As if you wanna go beckoning the end right now. Evidencing you don't really understand what the end means for some people. And so God looks upon the world and he says, you, you are the crown jewel. It's the Psalm 8 uh, symphony being played over and over and over again. What is man that you are mindful of him that you have crowned him with honor and glory? In fact, Christ is the preeminent Psalm 8 man, according to Hebrews 2. And we are being transformed into his image. And so for us, the thing that ought to matter the most, the thing that is worth fighting for is the person next to you. The people in your own home, your neighbors, wherever the Lord has sovereignly placed you, that is who you ought be fighting for. That is what you ought to be fighting for so that they could come to know Christ and you would not casually or occasionally or uh, viscerally give anyone up so easily, so quickly that what you communicate to them is they do not matter. We're not gonna be perfect in that now, are we? Because we too are frail. But it ought to be something that we fight for and that we fight for together. So what I want you to get out of the sermon this morning, well, that we are called to cultivate unity in our salvation in Christ so as to serve together as a missional royal priesthood displaying the glory of God for the salvation of others. Let me read that again because you just don't seem all that excited about that. Truth. We are called to cultivate unity in our salvation in Christ So as to serve together as a missional royal priesthood displaying the glory of God for the salvation of others. Um, We are not called for our own gain. We are called for the life of the world. And in that, you will find great joy and peace and life. When the church bears fruit, it's an exciting thing, isn't it? There are churches that are maybe full of people but still feel dead because nothing ever seems to really change. The size of the church is not what matters. It's what's, what's going on. What is the Lord's blessing? Remember John 15, the desire of the Father is to bear fruit in those who abide in the vine. Remember Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. His great desire is that we would be one as he and the Father are one and they with us. And yet we are quick to jettison unity. We give up on each other pretty quick. And that ought not be what defines us. We ought to be some of the folks who fight the hardest for others who bear the image of God and the image of Christ. We ought to be known for, if you're going to be friends with that person, the part's not going to be easy. They're not going to let you go very easy. They're going to love you. So may that be true of us. And so as Peter is coming out of the end of chapter one, where he says uh, that, that they are to be defined by their love for one another, their brotherly love, he says these words. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word. This is 1 Peter chapter two, verses one through three. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So he's saying, if, if coming out of the end of chapter one, he's saying so, so if you are saved, if you're redeemed and, and you are living in brotherly love, then you will fight for unity within the context of the church. Notice the the categorical word that keeps showing up over and over again. How much malice should we tolerate in the church? None. How much slander should we tolerate in the church? None. Because it says all, put all away. Now let me be careful here because sometimes we we get tangled up with the slanderer And the malice maker, and we say, well, we just need to put them away. That'll make life a whole lot easier. Just get rid of them and get rid of the problem. Now, remember, they bear the image. And the the goal of all church discipline, the goal of any sort of move that we would make is, what is it? Restoration. Not tidying up the church so it's easier on Sunday for us to feel better about whatever it is we're talking about. In fact, it ought to be messy and it ought to be slow and we ought to fight to not let anyone go. In fact, Jude says it so beautifully. You ought to snatch them from the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh, which factors into what Peter's saying here because actually what he's saying in the Greek is you essentially are, you recognize that malice and slander and envy and, and hypocrisy, these things are the equivalent of if you took the clothes that you were wearing and found the foulest sewer you could find, immersed your clothing in the foulest sewer you could find and then wore them in public. How quickly, if you had a choice, would you come out of that garment? You're you're fine being naked if you can get out of that, right? You're not, gonna, you're not gonna walk around with that foul stench coming off of you. This is the equivalent for the church when there is malice in the church. So what is malice? Just so we, we, we're clear on that. What's malice? Evil intent, meanness toward one another, uh, any sort of, of kind of, of bad intentions toward each other. That's malice, okay? That and slander. Everybody know what slander is? It's, it's a prayer request gone bad. <laughs> right? That's right. Y'all, y'all need to pray for Susan. Lord have mercy. She just, she, she just ain't been cutting the grass like Cameron needs. It's the <laughs> marital problems are horrible. It's bad. Let's pray for her. I didn't know that was going on. Oh, I'm sorry. But it's a prayer request. <laughs> Slander is the divulging of information, or again, intent is critical to this. Slander is saying something about someone that is not going to build them up. I love the Westminster uh, shorter and larger catechism as it unpacks the ninth commandment. The ninth commandment is, Thou shalt bear no false witness. The larger catechism has this extensive <laughs> list of things that like, you feel like, I don't even want to read that because I'm guilty of about 200 of them. Uh, but, but it's a powerful list of things that is not just about you uh, being unwilling to testify against someone in a wrong way, it's whether or not you even protect their reputation. And how many times have we not protected someone's reputation by being willing to receive slander and then make no comment on, on whether or not it's good or bad? We just go, mmm. You see, you're you're participating in that. So those things in the church are the equivalent of those foul, stinking, stench-filled garments in our midst. How how many of you would eat at a restaurant if the sewer lines had backed up and covered the floor with its contents? Would you be like, oh, no, it's Chick-fil-A. No, I'm down. They're not open on Sunday. You better get it while you can. Right? Right? You won't, will you? You would leave. Well, let me just explain to you that visitors do the same thing in a church when they come in and they can sense that there's something funky going on. Something stinks. Now, I know many of you right now are thinking, is he kind of sneaking up on us, going to reveal something? No, I don't know of anything in particular, so none of rest easy. If you're guilty of this right now, I don't know who you are and I'm not coming after you per se, but if the Holy Spirit gets you, that's on you. All right. And so deal with it. Repent and let's move forward. But this is something we should be very, very, very active in seeking to remove from our midst. And oftentimes it happens in a subtle way. You get sideways with somebody. Say it's some volunteer situation or it's, it's, it's some small group situation or it's whatever it might be. And you just decide, well, you know what? I don't need to be friends with them. I don't, I don't need to speak to them on Sunday. I don't even need to deal with it church large enough, I can sit on the left, I can sit on the right. Is that okay? It isn't. You should deal with it. In fact, you should deal with it with great swiftness because of its impact, not only on the church, but on you. Because what Peter's going to say next is deeply affected by if we have this kind of stuff going on and we know it's true, don't we? It is difficult for us to read the scripture when we absolutely are angry with someone. And when you're angry with your spouse, right? What's the devotional life looking like other than the imprecatory prayers and Psalms? It's tough, isn't it? It's difficult to grow. It's difficult to enjoy the things of the Lord when you have these kind of things hanging about your heart. So we, we ought to be the swiftest of all people in society to mortify, to use the fancy theological terms, or put to death, or put off, put away these things. And if we're unwilling to do this, you can't do anything else. There's nothing more to do. Because this will eventually turn into a festering wound. This eventually will be the little fox that sets fire to the entire vineyard, spoils it all. And Satan loves leveraging these kinds of things because they're just shooting fish in a barrel. It could be something as easy as you were trying to get that first parking space. Everybody in church knows that's your parking space, right? And some, some person gets here a little earlier than you thinks they can just take your space. Who are these people? Who are these people? Right. It could be something as simple as that. It could be, you know, that Micah, he, he's, he, he ended with a la, I needed la, la. See the difference? Makes all the difference in the world in your salvation, that la, la. It could be anything, right? I mean, it's all kind of stuff that, because we're, it's, it's human interaction. It's, 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 it's a miracle. We ought to see it as the beautiful messy miracle that it is that we gather every single week together and we ought to respect what it took for us to get here and in so doing we should fight to put away anything that would separate us and we would be quick to keep short accounts that we would come and seek repentance even even if we're not real sure we should check and see did you mean to offend me I'll tell you some other people may or may not but I'll take if I meant to offend you uh, did, 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 you, did you, or there's offense given and offense taken. You can also say, hey, I took offense at that and I'm not sure I should have. And there's also that you don't have to take an offense even though somebody gives it, by the way. But we should be quick to keep short accounts because of the great cost. And you may think, I'm not that big a deal. No, no, no. Christ died for you. You are part of this body. And, and we, we, we cannot... Uh, we cannot be a, any stronger than the absolute weakest link, as it turns out. So we need to grow together in this. So Peter's calling. You got you to deal with this stuff. And think about it from this perspective. Why in the world would anybody who, is, who is, uh, doesn't either, either is de-churched, unchurched, no church whatsoever, waste their time when they're hurting and they have need coming into a group of people that they see who've been together and don't like each other, who have have dealt with each other's needs in such a poor way, why would I come and put myself into the middle of that and put myself out in the middle of that? Better question, why would God, who so loves that person, entrust such a fragile and precious resource to us if we are unwilling to even love each other? Right? I'm not saying you're... Please don't hear like backstory. Cameron thinks we're not doing very well at this. No, it's just something we have to stay mindful of. And Peter's reminding us because you can't do any of the other stuff without it. In fact, you can't desire the sincere milk of the word as a newborn infant without doing this stuff first. You got to clear, it's a clearing of the deck of swords. And so if you do have something, please be quick to seek out reconciliation. And you may say, but I just don't want to cause no trouble. No, you, the fact that it exists and is not being dealt with, the trouble is already being caused. It just may not have played out yet. You follow? So better that we be proactive in dealing with it and, and, and moving through it, not for the purpose of being right, not for the purpose of getting our own comeuppance, but, it, but so that we could minister in a broken and dying world with something of value. So he moves from saying, you got to remove this, these filthy things and then, and so that you can, in your newbornness, your born againness to a living hope so that you can desire what is most important without being tangled up in all those other little petty earthly things that you would long to grow in salvation we should equally be concerned with this question. Am I growing? Because if you're not, something's wrong at some level, right? I mean, the the, the discipleship process, uh, and you may say, yeah, but sometimes it's millimeters over a couple of years. Yes, that's true. But you always ought to be able to look back and see you've come some distance. And you ought to be able to grow in these things because you're being intentional to cultivate them, and we do that together, not you in a vacuum. This is why it's important that we be disciples who make disciples. And so in desiring the pure spiritual milk of the word, that's, we're saying, we, we want God, what we want what you want most of all. You tell us, not we tell you. And in that we can grow up unto salvation. And as we mature further into the image of Christ, it also helps keep malice and slander and envy, and deceit, and all of these things at bay. And so from there, he says these words. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, what did he just say? He's saying, if you're a Christian, these things ought to concern you. This ought to be some of the fruit on the tree that that you are active in working to push malice and envy and hypocrisy and slander out and bringing in the things, the means of grace that are gonna help you to mature and grow as a disciple. And if you're not, you should be troubled. Now, we're perfectly American and and maybe a bunch of you are just like, you can't, I'm, I'm like Tupac, you can't judge me. I'm glad a couple of you got that. No, yeah, I, actually I can. I can't judge your eternal, like fundamentally, finally, but what I can do is judge the fruit on the tree, actually. If I love you, I'll tell you. Like if we loved each other, we would actually say, hey, you don't seem to be doing so well. Hey, you don't, something, something seems off. You're, you're, starting to, you're starting to trail off a little bit. And, and call, that's that Jude snatching folks from the fire. But we're so worried about getting up in anybody's business and we're so worried about somebody getting up in our business that we are having a hard time at times being true community. And Matthew 7 also looms large here as well for Jesus to say to the people who said, Lord, Lord, look at all that we've done in your name. Depart from me for I never knew you. Now, that doesn't mean you go getting neurotic about your salvation, but what it does mean is that you ought to do what Paul said is work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Meaning not that you work for God to save you, but that you work to understand what it means that you are saved and that your life is reflective of that. Now, sometimes, and I'm gonna say this again, sometimes what this looks like is you got out of bed yesterday. That was was the fight. You said, Lord, I'm gonna trust you with one more day. I'm gonna put my feet on this Ground And I'm going to go forward into the world. But it's the best I've got for you today. Other days, it's a lot more exciting than that. And it's not always the same now, is it? But either way, what it means is to walk in that living hope, in that newness of life, in that resurrectedness on the days when it's not pretty and on the days when it is. And Peter's actually going to speak to some of those days when it's not pretty, the days of suffering. He's not ignorant of the psalmist's words. But either way, the evidence that we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good is that we desire the things of the Lord, which means we also desire that the Lord be glorified, that we would not allow things to separate and divide and tear us apart. Listen to what uh, Baptist scholar Thomas Schreiner says of this passage. He says, longing to grow spiritually comes from a taste of the beauty of the Lord, an experience of his kindness and goodness Those who pursue God ardently have tasted his sweetness. Christian growth for Peter is not a mere call to duty or an alien moralism. The desire to grow springs from an experience with the Lord's kindness, an experience that leaves believers desiring more. See, what he's saying here is something I've said to you before. You don't have to come to worship. You get to. God's not keeping, there's not a... a, cosmic score chart in the sky where your your, your days of attendance uh, get you a better better house or trailer or whatever it is that we're going to have in the new heavens and new earth. However, what you need to be concerned with is if you don't think it's necessary, if you don't feel any desire to come, if you don't think that you get to that, that's not in you, that's a canary in the coal mine. That should disturb you deeply. And that's God's great grace to disturb that within you. Um, same thing with prayer. You don't have to pray. God doesn't need your take on the world or the Urban mire situation or uh, any of these things. He, he doesn't need you to point stuff out because he f- has failed to truly be omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. But what he has done is said, I know you who are frail and are not yet perfected or glorified, you're gonna need me and you're gonna need the power of the Spirit so the door is always open. Come. You get to. You get to go to the creator of the universe to ask for what you need in a time of trouble, both mercy and grace. That should move us to come. He gave us a book of stories and and poems and visions and narratives and history and all this stuff and we are a story form people. In fact, there was just a, a, a big story in, in the Wall Street Journal about us being uh, big on stories. And so, so the, the, the Lord has given us this great and wonderful story and not just like five spiritual laws by themselves, something quick that you could just memorize and move on from, but something that you would continue to engage. It's the living word. And it's interesting, any Her- of you know who Harold Bloom is? He is a, uh, a great literary critic, and he's, he's taught for years, I think, at Yale on, on, on literature and stuff like that. And he's not a believer, fascinatingly enough. But he said the two books that he would want to, to take to a desert island uh, include, uh, the, the first was not the Bible, but the second was. The first was something by a, a volume of Shakespeare's works. But, and I hate that he doesn't... Appreciate the, the, the story as true. Some of that has to do with people that he's interacted with, unfortunately, uh, from what see, he's seen of the church and he's just uninterested. But he gets that the story is beautiful and amazing. And we too should recognize, no, you, you, you don't have to read your Bible. You don't have to. You, you get to. All those love letters that he's written to you and to us, his people, we get to read those things and it's meaningful to us, should be. And so that's what he's saying here is these, these if you've tasted and seen the Lord is good, this is what should be kind of going on, this should be going on for you. If, if you're not feeling those things, recognize it, deal with it. Now, what are some ways that you are working to actively cultivate unity here at Christ Community Church? Not passively, not like... Uh, I just don't talk to anybody. <laughs> Best way to stay out of malice and, and, and slander and all those things is you just don't talk. Don't relate, right? I just show up as if, again, as if somebody's keeping score somewhere. No, it's not, you can't do that. What, what are you actively doing to cultivate unity here at Christ Community Church? Every single one of us has a part to play in this regard. And then the second question is, what are some ways that you are cultivating and longing for the pure milk of God's word so as to grow and mature? The Bible don't, I mean, again, this has to be cultivated, right? And and I've I've challenged you all before that your Bible study habits have to change over time as you mature, I think it's wise. I I love Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest, but that can't be the main diet for me for year after year after year. The daily bread is a helpful way to kind of get a little, little five minute shot in, But that can't be all that you ever do. Some point in your life, you have to read through the Bible to say you're a person of the book. It's probably just, I, I think Bart Ehrmans is right. And there's lots of different ways to do that. I think there's times you ought to slow down real slow and not read through the Bible in a year and pick just something and just ingest it slow. Like I did this, this last year in the, in the Psalms, one of the most powerful uh, transformative things for me just as a as, as Abba's son to, to learn the language of the Psalms uniquely read through it probably five or six times using commentaries doing all this kind of stuff you say well that's that's a lot of seminary stuff no they were all devotional I don't I didn't read it in Hebrew uh, I thought that was just a bit too much although I could so what are you doing to cultivate and I, if you don't know who are you asking And and, the better question is, why is it that maybe you don't think you need discipleship? You don't need to be part of a group. You don't need to be working through these things. That's tough when you think about it that way. Let's look back at the text, verses 4 through 10. And this is the call for us to fulfill the royal priesthood. And what we're going to see here actually is two different building projects. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined to do so. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So here, Peter is transitioning and showing us how we are fashioned into the same image that Christ is. Just as Christ is the cornerstone, we are spiritual stones being placed into the spiritual house. Just as Christ was rejected, we too will be rejected. That's coming in Peter. And so what he's saying is, if you've tasted and seen the Lord is good, then then what you should do is you you should come to Christ recognizing that you uh, are to be built into a spiritual house, that you are not just an individual Christian. You are part of something larger. You're part of the very dwelling place of God. You are part of the city on a hill. You are part of the group of people who should, to those who disobey as they were destined to do, call them out of darkness into God's marvelous light. And so he's he's saying to them very clearly, you have been redeemed for a purpose. You are being built up into the temple, the very place where God dwells. Now, the other building project that's going on is very much akin to the Tower of Babel. If you remember in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel story, they decided they didn't want to do what God wanted his people to do. They didn't didn't want to to go out and share anything. In fact, what they wanted was safety and security. So they got in the plain of Shinar and they said, hey, let's just do this right here. Let's keep everybody else out, right? And we'll build a a tower so that whenever we want to check with God, we can go and kind of check with God. But that way he ain't loose down here, people aren't loose in here, and we're not loose out there. And they looked at the cornerstone, and they said, Hmm, that's not gonna fit in the new Tower of Bible, and chucked it aside. But the problem was they kept tripping over it. The problem was they couldn't, they couldn't get rid of it in full. Why? Because of God's grace and love for those who bear his image. See, notice that if he places a stumbling block The purpose of the stumbling block is to keep reminding you that you can't do it on your own, that is grace. The purpose of the stumbling block is to not let you forget that the cornerstone exists. How good is God that he makes sure that even those who have rejected him must continue to deal with him before judgment comes. Some of you, you may be troubled by what he said here. He said, they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. Well, if it's double predestination, but see, that's not where it ends. We're gonna read in verses 11 and 12 that our behavior is actually to try to call them out of that. Their destinedness is because of what they've cultivated. You understand? If you cultivate uh, a life that is filled with malice and slander and you don't engage the means of grace, then you are destined to fall. If you fail to cultivate a marriage in which there is love and kindness and gentleness, then that marriage is destined to fail. If you treat your children as if they are, uh, um, have to carry your ego and they don't ever live up to anything you want and you are constantly browbeating them and diminishing the very image of God in them, then you will cause them to fail and your parenting will fail. It's what you cultivated. It was just what was destined. And so what are we cultivating? What are we being intentional about? How how do we view Christ? How do we view who we are called to be? Are we being built up into a, a dwelling place for God where our spiritual sacrifices will be acceptable because of who Christ is? not because of what we do. And so he quotes from scripture here, he quotes Isaiah 28, 16, and he, he, he quotes um, uh, Psalm 118, 22, and he quotes Isaiah eight fourteen. This is why uh, Psalm one eighteen twenty-two 22 was part of our worship. This is why we sang the song Cornerstone. We recognize that it is, it is in Christ who is the firm foundation and he cannot be ignored. Thus, whether or not you respond to Christ, we have come to see that as some sort of arbitrary choice. It's not. It's not an amoral decision. It is the preeminent moral decision, what you think about Christ. And what's what's sobering is that we in here have at some measure claimed have chosen uh, to, 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 to be part of this. But for those who are out there who are not believers, the judgment will not be amoral or neutral. And that needs to move us. That needs to affect us. It's not that, Hey, I got in, I got in just under the wire. So I'm, I'm, I'm good. I got a few folks I like. I'm gonna try to make sure they get in under the wire, but everybody else, you know, everybody's on their own. I don't know. No, we we need to recognize what we have been saved for. We have been saved to be built up into something that draws people to the beauty and the glory of the Lord our God, just as Christ the cornerstone did and is doing. And so which building project are you a part of? What are you being built up into? What are you being made into? And it says very clearly that we are to be a royal priesthood, a chosen race. That, that, that race term there is, is not uh, a way of limiting. In fact, it blows the doors open because of its spirituality. It doesn't matter where you were born, to whom you were born to. In fact, Paul says this in Romans, just because you're born of, to Abraham doesn't make you of Abraham. It's whether or not you were born again to Christ, in Christ. And so we were chosen for something. We are a royal priesthood, which means that we are the ones who who deliver God's word and God's redemptive blessing to others. It's not that we are the mediator, but we are the ambassador. We are the ones who tell them of the one who did, uh, of the one who did die for their sins and rose again that they could walk in newness of life. This is why we were saved. And it is That we, as Peter says, we are called to declare the excellencies of him who calls us out of darkness into the marvelous light. We should tell our story. But here's, sometimes I think here's a problem. We don't even know our own story very well because we we do, at times, a bad job of remembering. So one of the steps, the greatest evangelistic steps you can take is on the Sabbath to take time to remember the goodness of God in your own life. Especially within the last week, because that's real. And, and that's something you can share. Especially the goodness of God in the midst of suffering. We should not keep that from others. But we have to have a heart for them before we will do that. And he reminds us, as he, this is a, essentially from Hosea. He says, you were once not a people. You once didn't deserve mercy, but now you do. Here's what Karen Job says of this. She says, God's regathered royal priesthood and holy nation, his newly chosen race, according to Peter, would be those who had been reborn as the children, not of Abraham, but of God the Father himself through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Christian community declares by its existence, by its liturgy and worship, by the daily lives of its members, it declares the mighty deeds of Christ's resurrection which reveals the praiseworthy character of God. So what are some ways that you're actively cultivating the building up of the church so that our spiritual sacrifices, meaning worship and service, would be acceptable to God in Christ? Not not just that we are actively trying to, to, to build unity, but actually build mission, beyond mission. And what are some ways that you are proclaiming in a fallen world the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? Again, we are all gifted different. Some of you are doing this by, by homeschooling your children uh, in the way that you do that. Some of you are doing this by teaching in the public school system. Yes, it's possible. And some of you are doing this in, in any variety of ways. Some with very few words, some with a whole bunch of words. Some with very few people, some with a whole bunch of people. But you ought to be doing it somewhere. There ought to be something that you can recognize that this is, there's an intentionality to it. You may say, how don't we burdened with all that? Well, I'm sorry, you're a Christian. Let's turn back to the text and, and finish out So he sums up this, and actually it's the transition into the next section as well. He's basically saying, listen, remember elect exiles. How you live matters. And you need to be very active in bringing your passions under control. What do you think it is that gets us into malice and envy and hypocrisy and slander, if not our passions, run amok? Right? And we need to be intentional about whether or not we're living honorably. So it's not enough to just say, look, I didn't, yesterday, I didn't kill my neighbor Ken. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't steal his wife. I didn't steal his lawnmower. He's got a really nice zero-turn lawnmower, by the way. Uh, I didn't steal his lawnmower. It sounded like I may have coveted a little bit, though, uh, or a whole bunch on that zero-turn lawnmower deal. Uh, and, and so I, I, didn't, I didn't do anything bad to him, but that doesn't mean I actually did anything honorable either, now does it? And so it's important that we recognize that it's both the bringing passions under control and intentionally cultivating an honorable life for the purpose of drawing people to Christ so that they would become part of the family. Listen to what Edmund Clowney says about this as he sums up this entire section, the, the, all three pieces. We submit ourselves for the world's sake so that our good deeds may be a witness to them or a testimony against them. We submit ourselves for our fellow Christians' sake out of a sacrificial love for them. We submit ourselves for God's sake because we honor his image in, his, in our fellow creatures and because we respect his ordering of our lives, but especially because we gratefully seek to take up our cross and follow Jesus Christ. We do what we do because we recognize there's a reason for which we've been saved and that is to represent Christ in a fallen world so that they would hear and know that they are loved and there is hope. Let me ask you this and this is a great question for you to meditate on. What results do you hope for from your life? What do you hope your life results in? See, Ecclesiastes warns us, if your hope is in a lot of really cool stuff, somebody someday is going to take and do with it whatever they want. Usually what they end up doing with it is squandering it. Right? Instead, Peter's going to challenge us and has challenged us already to think in terms of eternity. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 makes it very clear. That which you build in the firm foundation, which is Christ, if it's haywood and stubble, it's going to burn up. That's just temporary, silly stuff. Even stuff that we think is not very silly, but it's all temporary. But instead, what we ought to do is is to build silver and gold, the things that actually are, are the elements that will make up the new Jerusalem, the things that will actually last into eternity. You're right, we can't do it all. We are limited by the clock. And yes, you must choose. And yes, you must prioritize. And yes, it's not easy sometimes. But we are called to think in terms of these things because what do you want your life to result in? So 1 Peter 2, 1 through 12 teaches us three things. <clears throat> it teaches us that we are called to cultivate unity in our salvation in Christ. Just like a foul garment, we should get out whatever would keep other people from coming here. Second, serve, uh, we are called to serve as a missional royal priesthood together in Christ. And third, that we are to display the glory of God in our daily lives for the salvation of others. So Peter, as he's, he's, he's trying to help these elect exiles who've been scattered all over uh, what is now known as Turkey. He's trying to help them see, no, your purpose hasn't changed. Your mission hasn't changed You still have eternal purpose in this world. Though you're being persecuted, though suffering will come, nothing changes in terms of who you are in Christ. Take heart and take hold of the mission and go and be so that others would know by your love for one another who I am. Jesus, that is. Let's pray. Father. Would you, uh, first and all, just forgive us uh, for so often. This stuff just doesn't, doesn't really move us a whole lot, if we're honest. Um, it just sounds like more stuff to wrestle with and do, and we already feel haggard. And so would you, would you first and foremost help us to not feel so haggard, not feel so overwhelmed and broken down, as we read previously in Psalm 42 and 43, uh, feeling like we're drowning or feeling like we're thirsting to death, it's kind of... Life feels like it's a balance between those, those two unfortunate things, but instead, call us to newness of life. Would you help us to see that we've been born again to a living hope? That we have the power in the Holy Spirit to put these things away and to grow as we sincerely long for the milk of the word as newborn children. Lord, help us to see where we have tasted and seen that you are good. Help us to, to taste that again this day this Lord's Day Sabbath. And would you help us to see that we are being built into something that is beautiful and glorious and that could never be accomplished by ourselves alone. And more importantly, Lord, would you help us to love those who don't know you? Would you help us to live in such a way that they are drawn to you as Father before you come as judge? In Christ's name, amen.